everyone who has a services business wants that recurring revenue, that sweet, sweet financial nectar, that, <laughs> that annuity. And what he said to me was, our organization is the product. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? In today's episode, I have Mark Sandino. I met Mark through EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. We went out for coffee that was supposed to be 30 minutes. I ended up talking to the guy for two hours. Extremely impressive. He has a design and development agency called Helpful Human that does multi-millions in revenue. They work with clients like Carnival, ESPN, Microsoft, Motorola, to name a few. But in addition to that, he's been able to take the profits from his agency and make some really interesting investments and spin up his own companies. One of those is the Experience app on Shopify. And we get into the details of how him and his team came up with the idea, the process they used to test it and validate it in eight weeks, and then how they knew they had traction, so much so that people were doing millions of orders with the product and they are crashing websites. This conversation kind of goes all over the place, but it's really helpful for anyone that's trying to do this idea of a launch pad business, start to make money where you can break away from your traditional job, make money, and then turn that into investments in your own companies or to investments in other companies. Um, but really good conversation and hope you can get something out of it. But enjoy this episode with Mark. Mark, I'm excited to have you here today. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And I enjoyed our conversation as well. It was a beautiful fall Seattle day sipping overpriced coffees on the sidewalk in one of our beautiful little enclaves in Seattle. It was a total pleasure. It was magical and, and romantic, but we can save that for part two, maybe. I only do my coffee with romance. So it was perfect <laughs> for me. And a little pumpkin spice. Absolutely. So, <sighs> you know, first, before we get into it, I'm interested to see how you answer a very simple question, but how would you introduce yourself? What do you do? Uh, that's a great question. And it's befuddled many a family friend and even some people who know me well over the years. In the most basic sense, I lead a team of technologists, designers, and developers who build digital product for our customers and for ourselves. But I consider myself an entrepreneur in various stages of success and failure. That's the broader sense. Yeah, sometimes I dread that question when it's an audience that I feel like is gonna, I'm gonna lose them when I start saying four words. So I, mm -hmm. I think that was very concise. So the, the way I see it is you've built a massive agency, a very strong like dev and design agency You've been able to take your profits and do some really cool things, launch a SaaS company, a software as a service Shopify app, um, and you're making angel investments, and you're also like starting to get into acquisitions. And so I, I told my wife after I met with you, I was like, I think I met me in the future, what I want to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm really impressed. So the first question I have is someone that also owns an agency and is looking to start and acquire things. You're doing so much. You have this agency, you have a software company, you have these you know, side investments. When you look at your week, how do you even manage where to focus your time and what to do? Okay, well, let's get real. I don't want to throw a wet blanket on my potential legend because that person you just described sounds pretty freaking awesome. 
but I'm saying, who is this person? So just to, just to go back, the reality is, is I have stumbled along and my agency hasn't been massive. Yes, we've done millions of dollars in revenue, but we simply made the decision, or I guess I did, because I'm the founder, to instead of yanking the profits out of that agency and putting them in on my balance sheet or leaving them on the, the balance sheet of the, the company itself to um, uh, be there in case of tough times, we've invested in other things. And along the way, because we've had talented people and we've had great partners and friends, there have been opportunities to make some small investments in the things that they really believed in, but they didn't necessarily have enough fuel to really have it make sense. So when I listen to someone like, I think I mentioned this the other day, Richard Branson, and he's on How I Built This with Guy Raz. And at the end of the interview, after Richard, in his quiet and unassuming way, talks about the victories and failures that he has, Guy Raz, and I'm going to do my best Guy Raz impression here. <laughs> Guy Raz says, Richard, last time I looked, you have something like two, 200 businesses. I mean, and then Richard, interrupts him and says, oh, actually, I think it's more like 220. And Guy Ross says, that's insane. And then Richard says, well, I think it's insane to only have one business. And, you know, I chuckled at that. But then I thought about that. And it really aligns with not me trying to build a kingdom, but it taps into how fun is it to be involved in multiple things? How needful is it for entrepreneurs to find new places to create value and what a great way to build wealth and diversity versus maybe only investing in one thing. So to answer your question, how do I manage my week? I'm, I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off, constantly browbeating myself to get focused, but realizing the more I give up and the more I empower, the faster I'll get to this place that I want to go. Okay, good. That makes me feel significantly better because there, I feel like there's two camps. One is focus, choose one thing, go all in and be the best at the world at it. Like people that have been working on one company for 20 plus years, that's kind of amazing. And I, I really respect that. But you, then you see people in the other camp where they have 500 ideas and they're really spreading themselves thin, but it's because it's what they enjoy doing and they're building teams that can help them execute on that. And so I always go back and forth on how to even approach business. But for me, I've realized I really like companies at a specific stage where it's like, wow, we've got an idea. We've got some traction. Let's take it to that next level of growth. But then when it gets to a certain scale, I almost get bored with it or I don't maybe add as much value and the impact isn't there. So I almost like that phase is where I'm trying to focus. I, I don't know if you have some line of thinking to justify it, but yeah, uh, yeah. Know. I totally feel you. Here's the question. What's the algorithm, right? What's the mechanism that we have to work? Because I've been there. And early on, I, I started doing stuff for myself in my 20s because, well, I felt like in the pride of my youth that no one's going to do as good a job as I'm going to do, right? And so the reasons for doing things probably changes over the years. As a matter of fact, I remember she was like my second mom. She was my best friend's mom. And she, I was just out of high school and she, her name was Sharon Francisco, lovely lady. And she said, well, Mark, what are your plans? What are you going to do? And I said, well, Sharon, I'm going to go start this business. And I'm going to do this thing. And 
she said, okay, um, what's your motivation? It's like, well, because I, I just know I can be super successful. She was married to an entrepreneur and she was loving enough and brave enough just to tell me, I can't remember exactly what she said, but she essentially said, you go for it, Mark, and you learn and you will learn and you will see that this energy you have here may not result in what you think it's going to. And it's surprising how often I think back on that moment over the years and how much I bristled internally. And I thought to myself, she just doesn't know me. And over the years, my, the algorithm of motivation and where I want to go has changed. And I feel the same way you do. It's like, oh, I'm really interested in this. And there's that initial pop of like founder's enthusiasm or entrepreneurial zeal leading to a cliff that you literally fall off when, I don't know what it is, resistance, or you uncover all the warts and bumps, or there's just a ton of friction and successful endeavors that have a realistic market to address get incrementally more successful as you strive through that. But I will just say this, there have been times when I've started things and I've started many things where I lifted my head off the pillow in the morning and just said, you know what? I am absolutely intrinsically unmotivated to solve this problem. I went after this just because there was a market there and I thought I could make money and I'm not interested at all. So while some people can do that, I've realized that I have to find some meaning in the thing. So I'm trying to these days find the balance between enabling the talent that is within my organization or the talent I can gather and my own motivations because mindset and commitment are huge to success. So I haven't got it figured out. I'm trying. You know, it's funny. I've kind of come to that same like revelation. I used to work in finance and investment banking and don't get me wrong. I love a good spreadsheet. Let's do some formulas. I mean, who, who doesn't love a good spreadsheet? <laughs> right. I mean, that gets me going. I know. Right? <laughs> Fire me up. But you know, I was, I was doing, I was like, you know, is this interesting? It's like, sure. Like, you know, getting bonuses, making money that that's, you know, no one's going to turn that down. But at the end of the day, let's create something cool. And I agree. If you're uh-huh. wanting to be excited about a Monday, I'm more excited about creating something cool with people you really get energized by as opposed to, hey, let's, let's chase something with a 20% return and we don't care what it is. I like how we're nine minutes in and getting very philosophical here. Um, so well, just a quick note on those single company founders. I have to believe that's more of a recipe for success because you become an expert and you go deep and, and you just know it. If you're not that person, the question is, what do you have to be? I think you have to be a maestro. You have to be a conductor. You're not the man, so to speak, at the helm. I'm reading a book called The Founder's Dilemma, which I think many people have read over the years. And there's data from 10,000 startups or something like that. And it talks about these two paths. If you want to be in control, you're probably going to go one path and you may not be as materialistically successful. If you want more material success, you have to let go. And I don't, there's probably not a hard and fast rule, but when I look at like the MailChimp guys who just had an insane exit, $13 billion from Intuit, in so much that that means they are successful, they were ostensibly absolutely committed to their little utility on the internet versus guys like Richard Branson, who seem to just have this joie de vivre and doing life as they see fit and somehow manage to enjoy these very diversified enterprises. So 
if you've got this figured out, Jim, I want to know what the secret sauce is. And I will definitely share it as, as I go along if I have any success doing more of the Richard Branson model. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Sign up for my course. Uh, it's $5,000 okay. and you'll learn everything Seems there. <laughs> is it all up front? I'm happy all, to all pay up front. front. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. Just kind of looking for that secret sauce. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very fascinated with startup studios and whatnot that, that kind of have this approach. So I, I'd love to kind of go back and get a little tactical and, you know, hear your process of someone that, you know, with Helpful Human, you've, you've built this agency doing multi-million dollars. Can you talk about how it's led to building the Experiences app, how you started to uncover this was the right opportunity? Because you and I talk about this idea of a launchpad business where the agency allows you to get the funds and get the experience to go off and then do that next business that could be something that scales a little bit better than an agency, something that's maybe software-based but would love for you to walk people through how are you able to go down that path? Yeah, I've had various conversations with other founders over the years. And the general approach is you're either a product company or you're a services company. Sometimes you're a product with a service layer, right? But let's just say product and services. And I remember having conversations early on when I started Helpfully Human and I was talking to um, an agency owner that was you know, roughly three times our size. And they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, like, you know, honestly, I've got these talented designers. I've got these engineers. We have this particularly interesting, in my opinion, hiring rubric for the kind of people we want. I really just, this team is so we can build product. And I expected him to say, oh yeah, man, that would be great. Because the feeling is like everyone who has a services business wants that recurring revenue, that sweet, sweet financial nectar, that, <laughs> that annuity. <laughs> and what he said to me was, our organization is the product. We are a service org, and we are focused on that. And so as I have looked at the low-hanging fruit of someone coming along and saying, hey, we need this digital thing. Can you do that? And we say, sure, yeah, we'll be your huckleberry. Oh, what's your specialty? Well, what do you want it to be? <laughs> we just back ourselves into whatever budget we can find. We've become more discerning. I've started this years ago, and this is how we got into the experiences play. I said, hey, listen, I like the idea of creating value. And certainly, services businesses create value for the founders and the leaders they serve. But what if we create this intrinsic value that's not monetized by an hour spent on a project? What does that look like? And I want to do that. I always wanted to do that. And so me and a guy named Pete Albertson were sitting in our little cubby space in our office and just, you know, riffing. And I have always enjoyed the experiential in life. So experience economy is sports, entertainment, travel, and dining. And it's billions of dollars of spending. It's every flight, it's every concert, it's every restaurant, every dollar spent in so much they can track that. But we started to see how Airbnb, for instance, was selling experiences. And their position was like, look, the house is the place you stay and it's the platform for where you go out and experience the thing you're going to do. Why are we not selling experiences and taking our pound of flesh? I think it's like 25 to 35%. And we recognize that just like the analogy I often uses, Shopify is to Amazon as we are to platforms like Airbnb experiences. I might sell my stuff on Amazon, but that's their customer. That's their brand. And it's a great way to maybe get to scale 
or get some immediate revenue. But if I'm not owning the customer relationship on brand at narrative, then am I really building a business or am I just selling stuff? And that's why things like Shopify have grown so much. I think Shopify has close to 1.5 million paying customers and will continue to grow because we're a D2C world. So we thought, what if we did something like that in the experience economy? There's a lot of platforms, P, Clue, Viator, Airbnb experiences, a lot of aggregators that are taking that commission. We thought it would be fun and interesting to participate with specifically brick and mortar retailers and say, hey, proposition, people don't have to get in their cars to buy anything, but they do get in their cars to have experiences. So you either close your shop and get to shipping, join the D2C revolution, or you sell experiences first and the goods and services are props for the memory that's being made. And what we have found through the thousands of customers that have used our app is that it applies to literally almost any type of retail from candle making to canoe experiences to tourism. We have museums. We have entire touristic, touristy cities. Like there's this one city between the United States border and the Yukon that uses us for all their events, but they're also selling stuff with it. And it's this it's this uh, synthesis of retail and services and pre-booked anticipated travel. Why do it? Well, it's fun. I didn't even finish college because I was tripping around Europe and Latin and Central America having experiences. I want to be a part of that. It's super fun to create memories with people and be a part of helping retailers be the nucleus of those memories. So was was this idea as simple as you're with a colleague in, in the office and you're starting almost at a macro level, like, wow, this experience economy is taking off, but why are these platforms owning the experience? Why can't these one-off Shopify stores, these candle makers create their own experiences, come to a candle making course and power it themselves? Was it, was it that simple or was there something else you saw from client work that led to it? Honestly, it's never that simple. I mean, I don't think it's that simple for anyone to come up with an idea that has a chance to scale. What it was for us is like, hey, let's do an experiment. And we, oh man, did we ever screw up? We created a little Ruby on Rails app, which isn't really part of the core technology. We do a lot of modern JavaScript and, and then some Go. But we said, hey, Pete, what do you know best? I was like, hey, you know, I'd like to, I like Ruby on Rails. I'm, I'm just going to spin up a quick app and um, let's just see what happens. And I remember we worked on it for eight weeks or so said, okay, here's, our, here's what we think the world needs. We need to allow retailers to create bookable retail-based experiences. So we launched it. And I remember telling my team, like, hey, the first time someone pays us that $29 a month, which was all we were charging at the time, I'm going to run around here and I'm going to get back slaps and high fives. It's going to be irrationally exuberant. And they're like, okay, right, Mark, whatever. And I remember <laughs> when that happened, I was like, yeah. And then our first negative reviews came in because it wasn't working very well. And the other thing is we thought it would be Betty Joe's bead shack on Highway 99 in Linwood. It's like people aren't coming anymore to buy bead supplies. What am I going to do? They're buying them online. Oh, I know. I'll do a bead making class. And, you know, she would maybe have five classes a month and half a dozen people would show up. We instantly had um, some brands that were doing millions of dollars of experiential booking transactions through our app. This is aside from the other stuff they were selling. It was, it was a candle making startup, millions of dollars. And they were actually saying to us, like, can you charge us more than 29 bucks? Because it really makes us nervous that we're paying so little for how much value we're deriving. 
then the next thing that happened is we broke their stores because we had not engineered our product to handle that kind of volume. It was an experiment. I mean, a, a functional experiment. Let me jump in. This is really impressive. I didn't even know this part of it. So you build this prototype in what we're, we're calling eight weeks. How did you get these people? Was it you launching it on the Shopify marketplace and they're coming to you? Or are you doing a bottoms-up approach where you're like reaching out to people? Uh, the first thing. That, that's the benefit of building on the coattails of a platform. And quite honestly, it was a platform that was nascent. I mean, Shopify has gotten a lot of press over the past two or three years because of how its stock has performed. The reason its stock has probably performed so well is because it fills such a needful role in modern retail. And so whether it's a Salesforce marketplace or it's Shopify marketplace or it's a key integration with a really powerful brand within the market you serve, that's one thing I've definitely learned is, yeah, there's some dependency there, but there is some definite lift just by showing up. And we've had competitors show up and some of them are even moving faster than us with their features and delivery because maybe they're a little bit better funded. I ultimately believe that our position as, well, really what we're going for is we want to be the platform for experiential commerce. We really enjoy being integrated with Shopify, but we're going to integrate with other places, other things, and other tools. Our mission is to help modern brick-and-mortar retailers be the number one curators of happy memories in communities and provide a lot of meaning for the people that interact with them. So, no, we're just now starting our outreach, to be honest. And we've just now figured out. It's taken us a while to figure out why we matter, to be honest. Yeah, it, it probably sounds so simple looking back and having it now, but it is hard to get to that core of it. So so a couple of questions. This is really interesting. First, at this idea phase, launching, we'll call it an MVP just to get traction. Was it hard to be decisive on, hey, we're getting this live in eight weeks. We have to have these features and these other features we really want aren't necessary. So we're not going to put them into this first launch. Was that a hard decision at all? Or was that pretty simple figuring out what the first prototype means? I think that's harder the more you go. At first, you're like, geez, what does this even need to be? In an ideal world, and this is what we do for our service in Helpful Human, experiences is a different business, but in Helpful Human, if we can convince our customer to do this, we're always doing early research and taming the beast of shiny object syndrome or over prescription trying to solve the problem. The Standish report, which someone made fun of me the other day because I bring this up so often. Standish group created this thing called the chaos report. And they said, hey, most digital or IT efforts fail. And it's not because of a lack of desire, budget, or necessarily skill. It's bad business requirements analysis. So we're doing things that are unnecessary to solve the felt need of that end customer. And even in really complex systems, there is that first most important thing that you need to do. But with our thing, we just took a stab at it. We said, okay, you know, booking. The world needs another booking service like it needs another hole in its head. We don't really need more ticketing or event management, but what do we need? Okay, we think we need this integrated solution, unified customer record at their domain, control the narrative. Let's just try the most basic thing and see what happens. Okay, success. And then we broke a bunch of stores and we scrambled to make <laughs> it right. And over time, we've made it more robust. Now we struggle more with, okay, what should we do next? 
We have all these ideas. We have all this feedback from our customers. These things seem to be super important. For instance, we just launched multi-day. We just launched the ability to buy a SKU that's in your Shopify inventory along with a book time. So you're combining as a retailer the value of the preconceived moment that you're going to savor until you consume it with a higher ticketed variant, right? So it really, I mean, we're constantly reordering our priorities and we're looking for early, early validation. But I would say this, the best thing anyone can do is to take that idea, do the minimal lift and charge for it from day one, because that's the best validation you can get and you build on that foundation. That's really good advice. And so I love looking at companies from this framework of coming up with the idea, getting traction, and then scaling. You talk about the idea, the traction, that's super impressive, getting that feedback immediately within Shopify. Now as we go to that third phase of, okay, let's grow and let's scale, how do you compete? Because the thing that I don't know with SaaS is all of a sudden, someone could come in that you're competing against that raises $20 million. Someone could come in that has some unfair advantage with partnerships or distribution. You know, what are you thinking through as far as competing, whether it's looking at raising money or a bottoms up approach with owning a, a vertical or an industry like candle making or whatever that could be? Or third, even with pricing, because you gave some good advice on how you think through pricing, whether it's self-serve or it's a traditional sales approach. Where's your head at now with approaching growth in a category that could become really competitive, which is the experience economy? Yeah, good, good question. There are so many different ways to think about this and from people who are way more worthy of our attention than me. <laughs> if you have a niche and you have first mover advantage and you steward that opportunity well, you will get more of the upside. If you're in an incredibly saturated marketplace where you're at, at the core fulfilling a, a really basic need, but you have a disruptive or new way of communicating that value and maybe some functional elements that make you more competitive, that's also a, a great path forward. Either way, you're going to have competition. You're going to either have the me too's, oh yeah, we're going to do that too. Or you're going to be a me too who comes and says, hey, we have a different point of view on this. And then you have to, to your point, say, does this generate enough revenue, let's say in the first year of having this customer as a SaaS business to pay salespeople, good salespeople, or the whole mechanism to do outbound sales enough money to keep them doing this, right? Our product is, you know, we have between five and 10 new businesses sign up a day. Churn is pretty high with Shopify. So we don't even consider trials actual customers until they pay us for at least one month. So that's kind of our internal unit economics, but we just have people showing up all the time. So it's more about optimizing their experience and empowering something that brought them to us to begin with this notion that this is something I need to do. So another, I have some friends who own a business and uh, they've bootstrapped it and built it up to a SaaS business up into the low millions of dollars. And they're very much a high touch sale. It's very much a hunting and farming kind of situation. But their first year ARR annual revenues are over $5,000. And then they have super low churn. So let's say you're in a business like that. Like, hey, we've got a great product. We can even start to do more complex pricing. Here's your base price. Or you can have this add-on that's this. Or maybe there's some metered components that are in there, which is 
when you look at some of these modern SaaS companies that are really successful from MailChimp to Intercom, you see complex pricing. So complex, in, in fact, that when you look at it, you're like, I don't even really understand what's going on here. And it's not that they're trying to obfuscate cost, but they're like, well, this is what we consider fair. And this is what allows people to scale up or scale down. Regardless, let's say you're that first one and you have a great core product and you have some significant revenues and uh, your addressable market is massive. That's what I'm saying. Okay, spend less time building new features. Yeah, innovate, build a moat through integrations or whatever it's going to be. Be sticky as possible and continue to grow that core product. But let's really go after customer acquisition. Let's look at that and see where is there friction and where can we where can we get more market share by funding that aggressive approach to being known in the marketplace. I, it's complicated. I'm still learning. Sometimes it's just really obvious to me. And other times I'm like, I, I don't know what to do here. And I call my, I do a phone a friend and say, hey, what would you do here? I call Jim. And Jim says, this is what I'd do. This is how the huff is going to handle it. You probably say that about yourself, right, Jim? I, uh-huh. I do. I do like talking about myself in third person uh, when when possible. So absolutely. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's super interesting. I, I like asking these questions. I don't know the answers to just to see how to approach it because there's so many different directions you you could go with it. But it's been super impressive to see what you've built and where you're trying to take experiences. And I just think anytime you can jump on a wave of an industry that that is going to be going up and to the right for the next 10 years, which is the experience economy. I think that is very powerful as well. Totally. So one thing that's interesting, you, you've got the agency, you've got experiences, which is really starting to take off. How do you think through managing capital, whether it's personal finance or even capital allocation as a CEO? Because most people, they have an agency and they'll take the profits and you think they just want to put it into their pockets and, you know, go buy a nice electric car or whatever, go get a vacation home. But instead it's like, no, let me like invest it in the next thing, or let me do some angel investments. Like how do you think about personal finance as this bootstrap founder that's also has this portfolio of companies that you're working on? Yeah. So I would not recommend the path I took, but I would also not change what I did. So Noam Wasserman, in that book I mentioned, The Founder's Dilemma, he essentially said that most founders would have been better served not investing in their startups versus putting their money in the equities market. And (laughs) I was having some shower thoughts the other day, and I was counting roughly how much money we've put into uh, new ventures, including experiences, and then thinking about, okay, over that time, what did the equities market do? What did crypto do? If I had been as courageous with investing in other businesses and other investment vehicles as I was in investing in my own, where would I be? And I can tell you, it would have been multiples, many multiples more of cash production than what I've produced with my startup. And that's just a really harsh reality. Putting my money to work elsewhere would have from one perspective, been a much, oh, the most real perspective, been a much better investment than pursuing something that I was really interested in pursuing. So that's the first thing that I've had to realize is $100 here in me isn't going to do the same as if I put $100 in Apple or Tesla or some other company that I dug up. 
And I just have to reconcile with that. I think every founder has to reconcile with that. So, so why do anything? Is it about the money? Well, yeah, I want to I create wealth. And what I do with that wealth or whatever my partners or my people do with that wealth, that's up to them to steward. But probably more importantly is I want the joy and the fun of seeing problems that are worth solving have a chance to solve the problems they want to solve. And I want to be a part of it. And I enjoy striving with people. So to answer your question, like, where do I invest? Well, I invested in an employee who said, I'm turning in my notice because I've always wanted to create games. And I said, what's your plan? Well, I'm going to go work at this game studio. And well, this person was actually a partner, early partner in my business and a key, very important individual, Nicholas Glenn. And um, he said, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go get a job at this big game studio. And the conversation was, they're going to take 110% of your time and you're going to be back to square one. You'll learn some things, but you won't have time to do the thing that you want to do, which is do your own thing. And we came to an agreement where we would fund him for a year of his salary and we would take a percentage of his startup and go on that journey with him. So even take that year of salary. Um, what If I had taken that money and put that somewhere else, I, I guarantee you I would be farther ahead than where we are today, where he and I are now striving together, me as a mentor advisor and him as the CEO of his own little burgeoning software development company slash game company. So I don't have a great answer. In hindsight, it's very clear that I made some risky moves, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah, but yeah, it's also, you know, that's the point of working is to be able to you know, go after those things you want to do once you've taken care of what you need to take care of. But yeah, I don't know if I want to run that model <laughs> of the ROI of the market versus what you could have done, but um, no, super helpful. So, I mean, you're doing a lot of stuff. I always like picking people's minds on this idea of a startup idea brainstorm because I'm, I'm sure you have other half-baked ideas in the shower or wherever else you get your ideas. But what are you thinking through as far as problems that need to be solved or other directions you'd want to point your developers or designers at? Anything that comes to mind? Okay. Well, first of all, all my good thinking is done in the shower. Okay. So I don't do any good thinking anywhere else. I totally agree. That's why I take two hour long showers and my skin has yeah. never been better. Yeah. Is that why you have four water heaters in your garage? I thought that was a little weird. <laughs> yeah, no comment. So this is a conversation I just had with a key individual at our consulting business today. We have a certain mindset of creating value through businesses. We have smart designers. We have smart developers. We have some methodology and process that we like. We like to do design thinking up front. We like early validation. We learned all this from the Lean Startup Method and this you know, sprint book by Jake Knapp and the other guy. What we want to do is we want to take this energy and this interest and we want to invest it in great things that come to us, things that we discover, or things that we just kind of serendipitously happen into, which is very similar to the first two things I said. So Instead of like, we're, we're starting an engagement for large international, it's a utility services business, and they need this thing. And they kind of inherited it when they bought another company. And instead of us going in and say, yeah, we'll just, we'll do the, you know, the tech and design and, and Bob Junkle, there's your thing. We're going into this saying, what is, how does this really transform the future of your relationship with your customers? How does it transform your business? Is there something more here that we're not seeing and that you're not seeing? How can we take this thing and really make it matter? And sometimes when we do that, 
we start to see, oh, this is a perfect synthesis of our skills and abilities plus their need. And there's a much bigger opportunity here that we can employ. The other thing I'd love to have happen is I'd love to have people who are fielding ideas and they have money to partner with us and say, hey, we, if you can build this for us, we think there's a really amazing business here. And, and we've had some of that, but a podcast that you shared with me the other day or a, vid, a vidcast really reinforced that, how we need to really be paying attention. So what I want to do is I want to take great people that strive together. We have these hiring acronyms that we were, we're looking at fish looking for fish that make us go ah, <laughs> you know, full stack humans that are affable with a high aptitude, adaptable, accountable humans. Um, and I want to I w- strive together with these people to, to do a lot of fun and interesting ventures. So that's kind of where we're coming from. Yeah, it really is the right people. It's just more gasoline on the fire as opposed to trying to do stuff yourself and people that want to go after the, the kind of same goal of, of starting something. And like, as you all are evaluating and thinking through problems to solve, are you looking at things that are inspired from clients or are you looking at scratching your own itches? Well, I'm, I'm probably like you, very prone to a great story. So something may have never occurred to me. And then either I see a story emerging from something or someone tells me a story and I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. I didn't know that was a thing. And then maybe what follows is, but we just can't crack this or there's a deficiency here, or I just don't have the will to go there, but I know the opportunity is amazing. That's what gets, that's what floats my boat. And, and then sometimes the opposite happens where someone says, oh man, this amazing thing is happening. You really got to check this out. This is super cool. You should get involved. I'm like, I'm just absolutely not interested in that, that niche, that vertical, that model. I don't know. How, how do you look at this stuff, Jim? Because you're, you're a total entrepreneur. Like, what is inspiring you? Yeah, I mean, to your point of like being able to wake up in six months and still want to work on something, I think at the core, it needs to be something you're fired up about. And for me, it really needs to be solving a problem I can identify with that I want to solve, but then in a place where I have an unfair advantage. And so for us, we're a growth agency. So it's like, where can our growth team be hooked into something where we're thinking distribution first and do it really well. Like, so for example, we work with a lot of direct to consumer clients. We, we've done a lot of work there. So if we can find a problem we're looking to solve, and again, we'll, we'll be talking about this fairly soon, but um, like a, a D2C men's product that we're working on, it's a problem that, we're so, that we ourselves have. And then we're taking the playbook of after working with like a hundred companies of taking best practices from that and applying to okay. it. So it's like a problem we solve. Do we have an unfair advantage? Is it an industry we're bullish on, has good margins, and that we think we can grow? One thing that you've done that is really interesting is like it's this idea of unbundling or un or detaching uh, a really cool product or feature from these big companies and allowing people to own it, right? So You've taken what people could do through Airbnb and allowing them to do it themselves. So it's not as expensive. One example I've seen is people taking different experiences people have within the Amazon shopping experience where it's like a one-click checkout and allowing you to do that on Shopify with like a a feature like fast or whatever the one checkout is. Uh I've seen some other examples where 
you know, Starbucks has an insanely amazing app. It's almost an unfair advantage as opposed to these other local coffee shops. And so I forget the startup that launched, but essentially allows any mom and pop coffee shop to have the same Starbucks-like app experience, and it's just white-labeled. And so as I see like some sort of pattern or framework for what you're doing, that that's what I'm thinking through. But yeah, we'll, yeah. Are you talking about Are you talking about Joe? Is that what it's called? I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's one called Joe. Yeah, and um, you know, my local coffee shop up here that I like going to uses it, and and uh, I've I've definitely used it. And by the way, St- Starbucks e-commerce app, their mobile app, is a masterpiece in my opinion. It's a perfect example of how over time, and I get it, people are going to say you're crazy, Mark. It sucks, but the amount of friction that's not there in ordering a coffee and having it ready for you or making it easy for you to pay is masterful. I, I mean, I've looked at that app a number of times and I've thought, what else, what else would I do here? How else would I reduce overstimulation, reduce friction? And I'm hard pressed to find that. And that's most of us when we look at stuff, it's like, ah, oh, geez, this is kind of unnecessary. This seems like engineers kind of had a heyday here and, you know, <laughs> kind of ran over the designers if those designers were even present. But yeah, no, I, to your point, I mean, look, look at what the trend is and what's happening. And then, you know, throw yourself into the mix and saying, oh, okay, here's a trend. Here's something that's happening. You know, Shopify's coming up. Okay, coffee ordering's happening. Oh, you know, what's happening in peer-to-peer health insurance? Uh, I was just looking at that today. What's happening and where do I think we can serve from either ideation standpoint or from a money standpoint or a leadership standpoint? And then I just say, enter into the fray, experiment with a bunch of stuff. Don't worry about, and I just would say, hey, the more competition, the better, especially in the services industries. There's always room for someone to carve out a nice chunk of the market for themselves and have, if you want it, a great, and I don't don't really like this term lifestyle business. I don't even, what is that really? But a great (laughs) business, a great cash flow business. Now, if you want to, if you want to, um, shoot for the stars. Yeah, maybe you're gonna need you're gonna need some investors. I tend to think more that way. If it can do ten to fifteen million dollars a year in top line, and there's opportunity to scale it much much larger, but you can see a path to ten to fifteen. That's you know whether it's outside money, it's your own war chest, or whether it's a super competitive or it's a first mover kind of thing. Go for it. Yeah, that that's where I struggle with. And we're looking to launch these things like how much money do I need to invest for one to be successful or two to really scale and grow? Because what was we're like building out this budget for this product we're launching. Mm-hmm. It's it's a real interesting exercise on wow, how comfortable are you with dipping into margins to see this through? But what's been cool is to see like we're we're pretty down for it. Yeah. I tend to pull the trigger too early and too often. And I'm partially thankful for that. But I also wish I was more thoughtful about that. In general, going for it and just saying, hey, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to get validation. I think you should do that at any cost. Well, you, you, know, you don't want to lose your home. You don't want to lose your business. But like, hey, I'm going to make a painful investment to validate this idea. Because what, what the world is rife with is it's rife with people with great intentions and great ideas and zero execution. And that's the toxicity in entrepreneurship is like, oh, I've got this great idea or 
you even maybe get a little ways down the road and you just don't really connect the thing that you call valuable with an actual buyer, whether it's a business consumer or a consumer consumer. That's where you got to get. You got to get to that initial validation. And I tend to believe that once you get there and you have even minimal validation, unless you're in the oddest niche in the world, there's probably a ton of opportunity there. So that's the first hurdle to cross is like, hey, will someone pay me for this thing? And if so, how do I scale it? And in your world where you work with a lot of D to C companies, and I believe you do a lot with consumables, right? Things that you put on you or in you. Correct. That, mm-hmm. Yeah. That is a super complicated and, and competitive space. And if you're good at that, I mean, that's, geez, man. I, I mean, it almost makes me want to come up with a product just to work with you on it. Because that's black arts to me, doing that stuff. It's like, how do you do that? <laughs> I want to see that happen. I'm curious. Well, it's funny. It's like it's so obvious and it's the most annoying advice. But when a startup or a brand like truly knows their persona and they're actually solving a problem, it makes everything you do on the growth site so much easier. But when someone's like, I want to start a cool fashion brand or someone's like, oh, this is a cool idea, but I don't know who it's for. I get real nervous. Uh-huh. It's funny because I was thinking the same thing with you, like the amount of products your team could build where it's either like taking something that's done on a huge marketplace and making it independent or taking something and making it for a specific persona. Like, man, I, I feel like your team could churn that out. But anyway, I'll have to pitch, pitch you my half-baked ideas at, at, at another time. Well, I, yeah, I mean, what, what we want from you and from anyone else who's listening is let's have these conversations. Uh, let's talk about it. Let's dream and let's find the the fastest path to validation and then be ready to pull the trigger on the right team, the right leadership. One thing I'm going through is the fact I I'm I'm spread too thin. I can't, I can't run helpful human and experiences and I'm starting to see other businesses that I want to invest in or control. And I just can't do it all. So that's an existential crisis that I'm going through and I'm working through with my investors and my mentors. What does it look like for me not to be the CEO, but to be something different that I'm putting my energy and my ability to tell a story to work. And then my love of good business frameworks and accountability to work, but I'm not pulling the strings. So like, I'm trying to figure this out myself. I liked your point about execution and being decisive because I know so many people that for the past few years, they keep telling me about this thing they want to do. But when you look at the action, there's nothing there. So it is fun to be the person that's decisive is like, done, I'm in, let's go. And you start doing it. But that can come at a cost of down the road. You're like, wait a minute, I did not think this through the right way because I have definitely been guilty of that. I'm trying to even like at the agency delegate sales. And it's like, oh, well, guess what? I've got to do all the operating procedures for that and document it and train somebody. Uh-huh. And I mean, that's the tip of the spear when you oh, control man, the I'm, revenue. I'm horrible at that stuff. I'm, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just horrible at it. Maybe we can end with this story that I think is totally pertinent to what, what we're talking about right now. Perfect. And it's like a, we're talking micro, micro SMB. And hopefully this helps someone get in the right mindset of what it means to be I wouldn't say committed, but I don't know. I moved into this neighborhood that we're in now, me and my wife. And my wife said, hey, there's this really interesting couple. Let's go for a walk with them. So we go for a walk. And my friend goes, hey, you're, a, you're an entrepreneur. Like, what do you do? And I'm trying to explain. He's like, I, I still don't understand. But here's my idea. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, 
I've got this video I put on YouTube and it's me showing people how to murder out their rims. I'm like, murder rim? What does that even mean? And he's like, well, it's, it's when you take your car rims and you paint them black and they look really cool. You put them on the car. And I, and my video is really popular because I have a better process. I'm not just rattle canning these things. I'm prepping the wheels. I'm showing them all the safety stuff to do and all the, all the stuff to use. And, um, you know, I'm wondering if there's maybe something there, some sort of business. And I said, well, tell me more about how many views is it having? He's like, well, it's 150,000 views. And I was like, yeah, I think there's a business there. And he says, well, really, well, what would I do? I was like, well, go get all the supplies, put them in a box, just pay retail for them, and then mark it up 30%, and then throw something up on that video that says, and if you want your own kit, just go here to buy it. And we'll just do a really simple one-page uh, landing page. And uh, he was like, oh, man, why would anyone pay 30% more than what I than my cost. I think like, because, you know, eventually if this grows, you'll buy stuff at wholesale and then you'll have your margin built in. But this is an additional way to make a little bit of kicking around money, but also validate that people value getting this stuff aggregated in one box without having to get it on its own. And they're willing to pay a premium to do it. And they're not going to do an apples to apples comparison. So he eventually did this, but you know, he's like, Oh, I got to set up an LLC. It's like, no, no, don't, don't set up an LLC. You got to spin it up and spin it down if it doesn't go the way you want. Just just do it. He, he set up an LLC because he's a cautious person, which is fine. <laughs> Before long, he had racks of paint and supplies. He was figuring out logistics. He was selling these, these kits so you could uh, murder out your wheels. And he had raving fans. And then one day he comes to me and says, okay, well, now what? And I said, well, now you iterate. Now you scale more. Now you look at your customer and say, okay, they bought this from me. What else are they going to buy? Maybe some of that fake carbon fiber stuff you can put on your car or just this is a particular customer type. It's like, well, I'm already so busy. I mean, but I have this great job at Boeing. And I said, well, let's just do the math. And when you look at someone's comp, this aspiring entrepreneur or really anyone in the world where they are, and you say, okay, this guy was six figures. And then when you add all his bennies, I mean, it was, I, who knows how we did the math on how many of these $35 kits he'd have to sell. And it was thousands and thousands and thousands. And he stood back and he looked at his garage and he says, I just don't want to do that. I don't want to do it. And I said, well, your only choice is to spin this down, turn the video off, take the page down and just be done with it. And when you think about why to do any of this stuff and the complexity that you, you're never going to know all the complexity, you don't even know if the experiment's going to work right? You can have a, once you do it a few times, you can have a really good idea, but that's the thing we all have to contend with when we're, when we're these nascent starting from scratch, doing this thing is I have a great idea to own or pursue it. And then you get to the friction of actually doing it. And then you realize it's Fisher cut bait time. I got to cross the Rubicon, whatever metaphor you want. And you are eventually going to be faced with whether your little startup is going to be something that you are going to swing for the fences because it's, it, there's no easy path. Even if you have a bunch of VC money, you're losing control and you have to perform or you're, you're going to be out on your butt, right? So I always think back to my buddy, his uh, wheel painting startup. I think at the most he ever did was like, I think he maybe had a $10,000 month, one month or something like that. But I just think it's a, it's a really interesting thing to think about. I think it's a great example because people like the idea of going off on their own, but do they understand the reality of it, the opportunity cost? and what it really means to give up that kind of safe income. But yeah, it can kind of be the difference between 
an entrepreneur versus an entrepreneur. But no, that, that was super well said. And yeah, definitely want to let you get back on with your life. But one thing, and you can do the short version or you can kick this to another time we talk, but I'm always interested. What's, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you in your career? Well, that's a really good question. You know, as a CEO, very rarely does anyone take the time to say, hey, great job. I appreciate you. Thank you for being there. It's like, oh, there's a self-sufficient person that's pulling all the strings and writing all the checks. He's not going to care what I have to say. <laughs> so um, I would say, I remember this one, one thing that comes to mind is this guy, Josh Bruner. He was an employee, one of our earliest employees at Helpful Human. And he got a great job offer that was a significant pop and pay and allowed him to do something that he was really excited to do. He wanted to work on iOS technology. And he took me aside. We sat down and said, hey, I have to turn in my notice. And with misty eyes, he said, you've been the best boss that I've ever had. I mean, I really mean it. And when I told my mom about this new job, she said, Josh, are you sure? Mark's been the best boss that you've ever had. And, you know, as silly as that is, <laughs> there's just this innate fear or tension. It's like, am I doing a good job? Am I actually a good leader or does anyone even care? And I've had a couple moments like that, but that was the, mo that was the highest impact, man. That was fuel that kept me going for a long time. So that's the one that comes to mind. That's so true. You know, it's not like you get um, an MPS score on how you are as a CEO sometimes. Right. And half the time it's like, is this feedback true? It's like, because obviously you're writing the checks. But um, if someone's leaving, I think they're going to be pretty genuine. But uh, or, that, that... or they're just let they're just letting me down easy. It's, it's a classic. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, it's not you. It's me. <laughs> oh, I've been given that so many times. Well, well, Mark, this was awesome. Thanks for letting me pick your brain for so long. But where can people find out more about you? you, your agency, about experiences, where should you point them? Yeah. So helpfulhuman.com, a weird name for a software agency, uh, but we live up to the name is one place. Experiencesapp.com is another place. I'm on Twitter with uh, Mark Gustav. That's my middle name. And uh, we also have a podcast, Helpful Human. I want to drag you onto that. And I, I want to I mine all your secrets that you uh, charge people for on how you do your, your magic at a growth hit. So yeah, Helpful Human, you do a search for Helpful Human, we show up all over the place. And um, I wanna say, I'm super glad we connected. Our initial conversation was super fun. And um, I, it's, I feel like I found a kindred spirit here in Seattle and Seattle Entrepreneurs Org. And thank you so much for having me on the, the podcast. No, thank you, Mark. Uh, same here. You, you, you're uh, the future me I want to be. So there you go. But no, seriously, check out Helpful Human. Their portfolio is insanely impressive. And if you're doing anything on Shopify, well, what they've done with experience is, is really cool. But Mark, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jim. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growth Hit has perfected 
expected, a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of a hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Thank you.